Welcome to Peak Mind. I'm your host, Michael Trainer, and I'm extremely excited for this week's episode with the one and only Dr. B.J. Miller. Uh, BJ is one of the most profound palliative care physicians on the planet. He um, gave an incredibly powerful TED Talk. I discovered him through Tim Ferriss' podcast. But um, I really thought it would be poignant and powerful to have him on the show, given what he has transcended personally as well as professionally. So... Um, he'll get into it in greater detail, but he's actually uh, a triple amputee um, and has confronted death in his own life. And not only that, but he has shepherded probably north of a thousand people through their transitions um, as they've approached death. And so as I recorded amidst this uh, global pandemic, which is which is confronting all of us on the planet and confronting us with our own mortality, with our interdependence, with our shared mortality in the context of how our actions can impact others and especially the vulnerable amongst us, our our elders. I thought it was really poignant to bring on someone who has such a profound and personal relationship with death and dying. And There's also, I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge a a deeply personal aspect to this conversation in that, um, as some of you know, uh, the man I love most on the planet, my father John, is in the final stages of uh, dementia and will likely transition in the not-so-distant future. And so to have the opportunity to speak with one of the foremost authorities on um, death and on using death as an impetus for living was really a, a truly profound gift. And I think you'll, you'll get so much value out of this conversation, out of this episode. I know that I did. It was truly um, one of my favorite episodes. Um, but beyond that, it was, it was a gift of a conversation with, uh, with someone where I think there, there are moments in life all of us have where we have a conversation with uh, a brother or a sister that we didn't know as a brother or a sister prior to our meeting, but uh, in meeting we we found that sort of gestalt consciousness, and I think this conversation is an exemplification of that possibility and potential. So, um, giving profound gratitude to B.J. Miller, um, and I think you will receive tremendous uh, benefit and insight from this episode. I do want to make a note that given it was the time that it was recorded, which is during this pandemic, uh, it was recorded via Skype. And so the audio is not as crisp as perhaps it would be if we were doing it in person in in studio. Um, But it doesn't necessarily compromise in any way, shape or form the ability to take in the profound insights. I did want to make notice of that, though, just because I think, um, you know, please bear with me as... You know, we, we're dealing with technology in the age of the coronavirus. So um, with that, uh, please uh, put on your uh, listening caps and get ready for a deep dive with the one and only Dr. B.J. Miller. All right, I'm here with B.J. Miller. B.J., it's an honor to be with you. Thank you, Michael. Pleasure to be with you, pal. And I wanted to have this conversation for a variety of reasons. Um, 
One, while we're recording, although I'm imagining, hopefully, uh, people will be listening to this well after uh, this pandemic period we are in, uh, we're, we're currently uh, all in quarantine because of uh, this, this virus, the coronavirus that is, has um, kind of spread very quickly across the world. And, yeah. and amidst that kind of uh, context, you know, there, there is a great deal of consideration around things that we traditionally uh, avoid, such as death and the possibility of confronting death. And you are, I would say, one of the foremost experts and, and, and definitely um, someone who thinks and has dealt with death quite, quite a lot in your work. And so I, I wanted to sort of uh, tap in with you on a deeply personal level as well, because as I mentioned to you prior to the call, I'm, I've been confronting the possibility and, and not possibility, the impending uh, passing of, of the person I love most on the planet, my father, who's been, uh, who first was contending with cancer and is now contending with dementia for going on almost 10 years now. Um, but I think that to me, it's, it's it, having lived in places that have a different relationship to death and having been, for example, with my father to places like India where you know, uh, a body is burned, you know, in front of everyone uh, and, and placed into the River Ganges. Um, whereas in the United States, we, you know, oftentimes tuck it in a corner and, and try not to think about it. I wanted to ask kind of how, and perhaps this is, this is a basic question, but how do you, what's your approach or how do you view death and the process of dying? Well... Thank you, Michael. And I just before I get to mention, I, I, I appreciate you bringing up your dad. Um, I think this subject is huge and it's hard and it's many things. And it's personal. It's universal and it's totally personal. And I think both need to be covered. So I really appreciate you sharing a little bit about your own life, because that's where this stuff gets really real, because otherwise death. It's an, it's an abstraction for most of us most of the time, and, yeah. and that's a problem. So anyway, thank you, and I, we'll talk about we'll talk about all sorts of things. But in answer to your question, I mean, I think that you know you pointed to India, and one of the things that's telling, you know, when you think about America, the U.S. Um, as such, um, we are a young, we are a relatively new country. Um, we are in a new consortium of people. You know, we're not that old compared to other cultures. And that, that means all sorts of things. But one of the tells, I think, is that we in the U.S. really, really struggle with aging, infirmity, disability, and death. All the imperfections mm. of life from the sort of American ideal. And... So, you know, countries like India, cultures, I should say, that are been around longer than our culture, per se. Almost all of them have some different relationship to death from what we have. And basically, you can I think you can kind of summarize that as cultures that have been on the planet for a while have gone through the hard work of accommodating death, mm. of seeing death as part of life. That's a really key distinction. If you see it as part of life, well, that means if you love life, you got to, in some level, you got to love death. You got to deal with that. Whereas in the American psyche, we've held out this weird, impossible notion that 
that somehow death is opposed to life, mm. that death is at odds with life, and um, that do- death is this foreign invading force that comes and robs us of life. So you can just tell by the way we're talking about it. I mean, that's a, that's a major distinction. One is this death is this scary foreign thing that I have no relationship to that's just going to come get me someday. And that's terrifying yeah. versus, hey, death is a part of the deal. I get to live because I have, I, I have to die because I get to live. It's a package deal. They're entwined. That's a much different on-ramp to the subject. Does that, does that register with you, Michael? I mean, does that make sense? It, it 100% registers. I mean, one of the things that, that I think the time we're living in, as well as my own particular cycle in life at, at, at the moment, has really brought to bear is this question uh, of death and and kind of a reset, if you will, of how does death become an impetus for living? You know, um, I I actually carry all, all the time now next to a de- like Ryan Holiday when I interviewed him gave me this mm-hmm. coin, and it says memento mori, and it's mm-hmm. you know the old Stoic creed uh, creed of using death as an impetus for living, and and I, I I'll be honest, I was very. I, I, like most Americans, uh, totally uh, like to put uh, death into an area of the attic that I never attended to. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was interesting because it was when I lived in Sri, I, so I lived in Sri Lanka for two years uh, in, in pretty formative time in life in, when I was mm-hmm. in my junior year in college. And then I had the good fortune of going back on, on a Fulbright scholarship and studying rituals that in part dealt with dis-ease, right? And it was a very different notion of dis-ease from how we kind of culturally look at dis-ease. And that culture, which was fascinating, there wasn't traditionally a, a, a word for privacy and there wasn't traditionally a word for possession. So one's identity was inextricably linked to the whole. And so, yeah. so when one fell out of balance, which was dis-ease, it was really the role of the entire community to bring them back into balance. And so mm. things like dis-ease and death uh, were, were part of, like you were saying, kind of that greater cosmological worldview that was that was that was what everyone grew up with, and you know it was a primarily a Buddhist country, so everyone would take a flower and, and put it in front of the Buddha and watch the flower decay on a daily, you know, on a you know every two three days, and and so there were different symbols, I think, of decay. And, and also a different relationship, interestingly enough, to elders, right? My, my nongis, my little sisters, would, would bow and give reverence to their grandparents who lived in their house, right? In a house that didn't actually have doors uh, on, on every morning and every evening. And I think even acknowledging the wisdom of the elders, you know, we have such a very youth-obsessed culture, and, and oftentimes even elders are kind of... And, and that's been a very interesting piece for me, you know, like... How does one deal with an aging elder? And you know, we 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 also, uh, you know, we 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 prize individual liberty. You know, uh, mm-hmm. which is a very interesting thing now that we're all collectively facing because we're confront you know we're confronting our our inherent interdependence. We've lived under this fallacy that yeah. we're that we that we are we that we are you know city on a hill individuals. So anyway, yeah. I'm going all over the place, but uh, I get excited. So in essence, I think I, I'm. I con- do too. Yeah, I, 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 I'm. Ex- I'm. To speak vulnerably, I'm very. I'm still very scared. I don't know the right way to uh, approach death, but I do think that. Um, 
you know, again, in that B- Buddhist worldview, you know, it's, it's the avoidance of, 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 of reality that causes the suffering. You know, the, re- the reality yeah. itself doesn't actually have the inherent suffering. It's, it's the avoidance. And so I'm in the process of, you know, the monks traditionally would put their master's skeletons in front of them to face death. Mm-hmm. And, and so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm putting the proverbial in front of me to sort of confront it for the first time, if that makes sense. It makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that after that rambling, I, I suppose I would say, you know, as someone who, from from a from a deeply compassionate point of view, has also confronted your own mortality. Um, I think earlier than most, uh, and it seems to me at least, became a huge impetus for the way that you live your life. Could you share a little bit, just for the benefit of the audience, of your own mm-hmm. near-death experience and how that informed the way that you that you're you've approached life since that time? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I'll preface it with something of a conclusion, just to confirm that I totally agree with what you're saying, which is it's useful to confront death because it happens. I mean, you can have all sorts of feelings about it, but it's going to happen. And therefore, <laughs> because it's real, you're going to deal with it. And and you can go kicking and screaming, or you can kind of find ways in that are less chafing for you. That's great. And so when it comes time for your dying, if you have some sort of relationship to it, you probably won't suffer as much. So mm-hmm. there's, there's one reason to look at it before you absolutely have to, is that it helps mitigate some of the pain that might come your way when it's time. Mm. But the other reason is maybe a bigger reason is, and why it's important for us folks who may be far away from death to think about it is it absolutely can inform how you live your life. Mm. And one of the secrets that comes up in hospice work all the time is, you know, people sort of say, oh, you do hospice. Well, oh, that must be so depressing. That must be so sad. Well, yeah, I mean, it's sad. Sadness is part of the deal, too, sure. But it's not its not inherently depressing. In fact, a lot of beautiful things happen. And what you see a lot in your patients and in your colleagues is people who were uh, uh, repelled by the subject, who finally turned their attention to it, all of a sudden realize that they appreciated their time so much more. They appreciated the sensations that their body gave them. They in a way, find themselves loving their life even more because the fact that it ends is the thing that makes it precious. Mm. So so I think there's something, even if you're just trying to mitigate pain and therefore you're dealing with death because you have to, that's one reason. But I didn't. I think we're all missing out on a lot of happiness and a lot of joy in our lives far upstream from our death um, if we don't somehow rope death into our worldview. So anyway, I just want to kind of state that it's not just for the dying that we should think about death. Um, so anyway, as a little prologue before I forget, but, um, so for me, yeah, my, my relationship to this big subject started when I was 19 and I was a sophomore in college and I, you know, I, I had, I was on top of the world at that point. I was really feeling, I was, I was sort of a late bloomer. And, you know, so I was awkward and goofy deep into high school and physically and just in every just off, you know, <laughs> and, you know it's sort of like fresh freshman year of college. I kind of finally I felt I was in my body. I felt a, a sort of a surge of, of, of confidence in a way of, of just being right with myself. 
being in touch with my body, my body had, was starting to do what I hoped it would do. You know, I was rowing crew at Princeton with a, with some very dear friends, and everything was just you know I was I was firing on all cylinders in ways that I had never in my life, and that lasted about a year. That sort of that that innocent delight lasted about a year until sophomore fall when I got my what I call the cosmic spanking. You know, this thing that just some force comes along that you that that helps you realize you this idea that you have control and you're autonomous and blah 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 blah. The gods just come on and go whack, you know? <laughs> and I got I I I happened to have gotten that early on, thanks to um, you know I was with friends. It was sophomore fall just after Thanksgiving, and we were horsing around. And there's a commuter train that runs right onto campus. This is in Princeton, New Jersey, and it was just parked. It was just sitting there. And I just we just decided to climb it like you would climb a tree or whatever. We didn't think much of it, but I had a I had a metal watch on. And when I stood up on top of the train, the power lines, which were close to the top of the train, that's how the trains ran. The electricity arced to my watch, and that was that. It was a big – so the electricity entered my body through the left arm um, and then ed- exited through the legs. And, and electricity tends to burn where it enters and exits. So I, have, I, I ended up losing my left arm below the elbow and both legs below the knee. Um, and came very, very close to death. And it was very touch and go for weeks to months in the burn unit there in, in New Jersey. And so that's, that was my introduction. That was my, that was my introduction to the reality of death. Um, and we can talk all sorts about it. You can imagine that was, that was, a, that was an experience that brought me many, many things. But in this way, I'm, I'm extremely grateful for it waking me up while I still had so much life in front of me. Wow. Um, yeah, I would actually love to delve deeply into it. And, and what, what hit me, because I, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of most close to my heart, and not to defer, because I actually really want this to be about you, but um, I want to talk a little bit about the burn unit, because when I was doing my research, um, you had talked about how sterile it was. And I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the psychology of being in the burn unit. And, and, and and with, with a little bit of a side note, because I, I, I'm actually deeply curious about your experience there. The reason I share it is my dad, when he was 16, was actually on a ranch in Wyoming. I don't think I've ever shared this story. And he was spooning gasoline. And his, his friend was spooning gasoline. And, uh, and it actually caught fire. And he threw the, as you do, kind of uh, the gasoline. Uh, and, and it caught my, on my dad's legs. And, and my dad was actually in a burn unit for... Uh, almost a year and was told he'd never walk again and Ooh. the stories he told me from that time of, of spending an entire day trying to take the bandages off and you know one time he got left in a hot tub and uh, and the degree to which it influenced the way he, he, he lived moving forward uh, was was I would say seminal uh, but also I think really forged his character in, in, in that adversity and also in a strange way I think his compassion I, mean, I think he had an innate compassion but I think it was deeply uh, informed by that experience and so I share that because I want to talk a little bit more about him later and get some of your thoughts but um, can you from your own experience and I, I love the story specifically of the snowball hopefully you, you maybe incorporate mm-hmm. that but can you share like when you when you woke up um, what was it like contending with this brave new world of you in a totally different version of yourself, I imagine, than you had you know, conceived of throughout your entire life? Yeah. 
Yeah, it was, you know, it's quite a process. You know, we're talking 30 years ago this year. Mm. So it's been a long time. Um, and Lord knows my memory is, I'm sure, you know, fraught. Who knows if a lot of things I remember actually happened. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, I think I, I have to point this out. Like, of course, it was an enormous transition. And then, of course, I had never pictured myself as an amputee. I'd never pictured myself really being close to death. I don't think. I don't remember it. Um, but I do, you know, I... I had a, I had a, I had start. So I grew up around disability. You know, my mother had polio. So and then post polio syndrome uh, when she was in her forties, and I was a young, maybe I was about ten, nine or ten when that hit. So she's been significantly disabled my whole life, almost all of her life. And that's a huge, that's a huge piece of this puzzle here because I was innately aware that. A, that people aren't just their bodies. You know, there's not this physiognomy. It's not like you look outside like you are inside. I knew that those there could be a real gap between your external and internal lives. I knew that being in a different shell didn't mean you were less valuable. Mm. You know, I just, I had, I learned so, inherited so much from just watching my mother be in the world and watching the world bounce off of her. Um, so I, I got a really, that was a really key distinction. I think a lot of my friends who were in the rehab hospital, you know, I was in the rehab setting for about a month, uh, and then uh, a couple more months as an outpatient. But in there, I met a lot of guys who had been, you know, from gunshot wounds or infection or some sort of trauma was in, were in similar shoes as mine now. And we were all trying to figure ourselves out. Um, but I noticed those guys, their identity they they had to learn for themselves what I had inherited, which is, mm. hey, I still have value. I'm not less of a person just because I have fewer body parts. You know, uh, I, I I knew that. I knew I would still have access to love. I knew I could still be a productive or thoughtful member of society. And I knew there was this thing called the disability rights movement. So that's the Americans with Disabilities Act was 1990. That's right when I became disabled myself. And now all of a sudden there's a burgeoning, a blossoming of, of civil rights protections around disability. So all these things are happening that really helped inform my acceptance of myself. Mm. Now, so does I have to, that, that I was very lucky to come into that situation with all that. All right. So that's a big piece of it. But it's also true, too, that it took me a couple years. Like, I knew in my mind that I could love and be loved and that I could function in the world, and I still had value, per se. But I didn't necessarily – I was still ashamed. I was still in pain. I was still awkward. I still didn't know myself in this way yet. So it took me a while. It was sort of like I could see the, – the, the image back then, and it still sticks now, is I could see land. You know, I was adrift in the burn unit. I was trying to figure myself out. I was all these things, but I could see land that my family had helped set. My friends had helped set and they were sending me loving signals. And I, like, even if I couldn't, didn't know how I felt about myself, I, I, they held that ground for me and I, and, and allowed me to, I could see it. I could just over months and years, I could swim my way to that shore that I could see that they were holding for me. Mm. And that was a huge, huge help. 
But my point, too, is it took me years to actually believe what I'm saying right now, which is that I feel okay, that I have value, that I could be a sexual being, that I could work, that I, you know, yeah, all that stuff. I had to prove it to myself, and that took several years. Um, so that's one point. There's another, but I'll just ask you, Michael, if you'd like me to go into it. But there's there was another key piece of this was when I studied the art world. And um, I don't know if that's useful for you, but I could tell you a little I, bit about that. I, I'd, I'd love it if you talked about that. Yeah. I mean, so it, interestingly enough, just as a, as a caveat, I, I feel like I, I think art is just such a fascinating existential exercise in and of itself. And I think we're talking about yeah. the ultimate existential quandary. So, yeah, I would love yeah. it if you went there. Oh, totally. Well, I'm with you. Um, well, I hope we get to meet in person someday, Michael. We have a lot in common. Um, yeah, likewise. You know, I think, so I was sitting, so I'm sitting in the burn unit. You're just bored, you know, and you're waiting. You're, like you mentioned your dad, like the bandaging, the daily, you go to this place called the tank room and there's this team of people who debride you, pick off dead flesh. And it's, they hose you down with a dishwash, dishwashing scrubber. I mean, it's just, it's a torture chamber. There's yeah. just no two ways about it. Um, and so your day is you're, you're, I see you're sitting in this room, no windows, everything's got to be very sterile and you're bored and you're in pain and you just sort of counting down the minutes until you have to go to the tank room every day. Not a great daily existence. Um, but you know, it was also weird. I was the, the first Gulf war was on TV. I'm sitting here watching a war play out. It was so odd. Um, like a first sort of televised war too. I, I just, the whole thing was so odd. I would toggle between, I think it was called the, uh, cooking channel. <laughs> um, cause I was sort of just, you know, eating hospital food and sort of raptured what I, someday I'll eat again. There was like, you know, somehow <laughs> between that and the weird entertainment of the Gulf war. And here I am in my own little personal war and the whole thing was just off. But my, my um, as soon as I could have visitors, one of my dearest friends, a guy named Justin Burke, came and visited me. We'd start talking. He was ahead of me in schooling, and he was in, in, in the U.K. as a student. Um, but he was home in New Jersey visiting, and he was studying art history, and we would just sit and talk about philosophy and about art. And basically, you know, what makes a human being a human being? You know, what a, what a powerful question. Um, and one of those things seems to be that our we have this capacity even this need to recreate our experiences like take the raw material of our lives and make something with it mm. you know what a an amazing impulse and i didn't i still don't totally understand what that's about but i see that impulse all over the place and and an artist you know they don't waste time worrying about materials that they don't have they work with what they have that's part of the process is dealing with your reality and making something of it and just that sentence alone felt like what a that's what i was doing you know yeah. like that was like i loved art i loved music in particular but i didn't have i didn't i hadn't been attracted to it um in this very vital way but now i started to see that the art world had something to teach me that you work with the raw material of your life and you make something with it and, mm. and, and the more unique in some ways so the odder it looks in some ways the better um, the more original, um, and there was something in there to celebrate. There was some process in there for me. So that took me. So I changed my major when I went back to Princeton that fall and fall from East Asian studies to art history, because I thought there was a therapeutic lesson for me to learn in there. And sure enough, there were. 
um, pretty quickly, um, I, I started to realize that studying art was really about the the art of looking, the art of seeing. So as a human being, you know, you start realizing there's so much in this world that I can't control, that I can't change. But as a human being, I have this capacity to look at it differently. Mm. And this is how we can change the world. This is how we can change our reality, no matter what it is, because we can change how we see it. We can change at our lens. Wow. Right. I mean, this is one of the things that just makes me love being a human being. I mean, sure, I suppose we'll probably learn that other species do this, too. But there's something about our human experience where we can um, we have an incredible power and that power is to change our perspective. Um, and so here I was studying art, learning how to do that. And boy, I had my test subject of myself upon which to exercise this muscle. And it was the best decision I ever made. You know, it was a very, it really served me very, very well. And it eventually, I just, it made me just be interested in my body, it made me be interested in my prosthetic legs, rather than to see my prosthesis as these, this cheap, uh, you know, substitute for the real thing. I saw them as their own thing. And I didn't compare them to my own legs. They were their own thing. And I could celebrate the carbon material, the skinny ankles, whatever it was. I could find some. The fact, I honestly, I've said this, I, I'm repeating myself, but I, like you look for where you have a competitive advantage. And I remember thinking early on, gosh, when I go walking in the ocean again, I won't need to be worried about stepping on a stingray. Like that, <laughs> like that, that thought, because I was as a kid, as a Midwesterner, I'd be in the ocean, I'd be terrified be by a shark or step on something. And so that, that thought alone held me for months. Like, I have an advantage. Mm. I don't have to worry about stepping on a stingray. You know, like little shit like that really compelled me and pulled me forward. And I'm oversimplifying. There's a lot of pain in there. There's sure. a lot of torture and ups and downs. But these kinds of thoughts were through lines for me, and they really, they really worked. It's it's wild. I mean, first of all, I love that. Um, just to sort of be in the listening, I love your your kind of distilling down that we as humans and perhaps other species, but but as far as we know, have this unique ability to just shift our frame. You know, to shift our perspective yeah. such that something. And most art is created, uh, well, I'd say most, but much art is created in some ways from the pain, you know? Um, yeah. There's actually a, a, yeah. a Mayan shaman that, that I, when I was going through a particularly challenging period in my life, you know, he said that uh, pain is the horse that beauty rides. And he talked about yeah. shit being turned into sort of spiritual compost. And I was like... Yes. Oh yeah, I love that. I love it. something yes. about that. The, the flower, like there's something about that metaphor. Like and I love horses. I was like, oh yeah, that works for me, and it, yes. evoked, it evoked for me as I was listening. You know, there's this gentleman. God, it's it's wild the parallels as as you talked. Um, so my greatest confrontation in some ways, uh, aside from personal, where I where I actually conf had was deeply immersed in the of of death, kind of being on the doorstep, if you will was right after the 2010 uh, earthquake in Haiti. I went and volunteered in uh, the largest field hospital there. Um, and, you know, it was on the airport. You know, there was tremendous... Uh, I've actually never spoken about some of those experiences. I mean, you're a physician, so you, you, you've likely seen certain things. But 
um, you know, literally, you know, bearing witness uh, to a mother, you know, saying goodbye to her child um, and, mm. a- and asking me to take a photograph, which felt so odd, but yet wow. she did not have a photograph of her child in the moment before its passing. I don't think I've ever actually wow. said that out loud. Um, wow. Just confronting uh, death, and, but yet a, a strange serenity, unlike anything I've ever seen. Like, it wasn't mm. like this wailing, not that there would be anything wrong with that. There was almost like a, a peace in the perspective and there was a gentleman there who I met named Wilfred. Uh, and, and I share this story because, well, you'll understand in a second. So Wilfred actually was a welder, and he lost his leg on, uh, during the earthquake. So uh, the wall collapsed, severed his leg, and he actually carried it, I kid you not, carried it with him for near seven days. Of course, at this point, there's no way it's getting reattached. Lines up in the right. Dominican Republic, it's gangrene, all the things. But I was with right. Wilfred at the hospital the day that he received his prosthesis. And it was a very humbling exercise to see people, because there were a number of people being fitted. Uh, and for, for, uh, for many, it was a very conf- confronting uh, exercise, uh, existentially, to you know, kind of reckon with that this would be sort of the, their, new, their new limb, so to speak. And Wilfred, and I'll never forget this, Wilfred, I kid you not, within half an hour, it was like he had a new lease on life. Like, the guy literally goes outside. He's, I mean, he's a very fit young man. He starts to, like, break, almost like break dance. He starts to, like, kick a soccer ball. And to make a very long, make a long story short, he, he winds up turning his welding skills into making prosthesis for children throughout Haiti who had, uh, who had lost their limbs during the earthquake. Then he starts a soccer league for amputees, uh, for men, male amputees. Uh, and I went down, flew down and visited him again and saw him play soccer in the streets of Port-au-Prince. I mean, it was, it was such a beautiful sight. I'll, I'll share with you, wow. actually. I made, a, I made a short short film about it. Then he starts a, a soccer league for women and children who had lost their limbs. And then, to bring it full circle to the to- war times, he gets flown in from the United States of America to, tr- uh, to teach uh, veterans um, returning from Iraq and Afghanistan who had lost limbs in how to play soccer uh, and, and sort of contend. And I was like, this guy turned the ultimate, uh, in some ways, existential challenge into the most beautiful garden of possibility. And I actually, when we started Global Citizen, I honored him on stage and introduced him to my dad, which was one of the moments of my life, like, because uh, I just felt like he exemplified the spirit of, like, a, a taking a challenge and turning it into an opportunity. So anyway, I, I felt like I had to share that because what you share, like, the way that you exemplify seeing that, and I'm sure it wasn't all, look, I'm, you know, it's, I'm giving a bit of the highlight reel version of that story, yeah. but, yeah, but you, because it, it, it so helped me in thinking about it. I was listening to your conversation, for example, with Tim Ferriss and, 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 uh, and running on the beach and thinking about, you know, as I shared with you when we got on this call, uh, this week was the first time, my, you know, I kind of have a, a hidden kind of agreement with my mom that when she thinks it's time, you know, I'm getting on a plane or, or a car or whatever it is. And, and, um, and part of the reason I've been taking this quarantine so seriously as I as I want I'd like to be there to hold my dad's hand one last time you know before he passes uh and so at the beginning of the week she kind of she was like it may be this week and so I was listening to your conversation and and just listening to what occurs to me as an incredible uh like it 
I could be wrong. It seems to me like Wilfred, you very much made peace. Like, it doesn't seem like you have huge existential angst around, you know, the fact that you have lost limbs. Like, you've actually made peace and now seen that as part of your, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but gift. But to me, that notion of not only reckoning with what is, but celebrating is such a moment for our time. For me personally, and I think for the collective, right, where it's like everyone is now forced to reckon with a totally different reality from what they thought was going to be their default reality, right? And so could you speak into that a little bit? Like what do you think is the gift as someone who has um, moved through uh, a, a, an existential reckoning, if you will, of, mm-hmm. of a life as we thought it would be into a life that it is now and embrace that and seeing the beautiful flowering forth of what that can be, yeah. could you speak into what you think is the opportunity? I mean, this is getting a little philosophical, I guess, but as we're sitting amidst a coronavirus pandemic, the first mm-hmm. pandemic many people have lived through, what do you think yeah. is the opportunity of this moment? Yeah, well, I appreciate the question. Um, you know, like we're talking here, and thanks. What a story about Wilfred. I mean, I think what he exemplified and what I've aspired to do, and a lot of people who are dealing with things that they would otherwise not choose, is uh, for one, it's humbling. Yeah, and that really is a good thing. Um, for two, it 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 forces a creativity on you. Um, I don't think we, I, I think we should use that language. That's why I'm borrowing from art world. But yeah. what Wilfred did was that was a creative response, right? Totally. Um, you might call it adaptive, but this is what humans do very, very well. I mean, we're, we should remind ourselves, we're pretty pathetic creatures. You know, you put <laughs> us out in the woods, you know, without clothes or food, we're screwed. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we need, we need, we need clothing. We need, I mean, you know, we're, we're not the most robust physical species. But we got these frontal lobes. We've got this this brain that allows us to f- confront limitations and find workarounds through a creative process. Mm. That is essential human stuff. Um, so this is just one way of describing it. But I think what what a moment like this does, what an existential crisis does. Wilfred had it. I've had it. A lot of people have them as individuals. But here we are doing it as a collective. Here we are having an existential moment at scale. Mm. And um, I think the power of an existential moment is to wake you to larger realities, Mm -hmm. to break inertia, you know, just habit. Well, we just do in our day and we just days go by and you don't, you know, it's just it's just you're on a sort of autopilot. It, this disrupts your autopilot. This forces you to look at things differently. Um, these are all really wonderful effects. Um, and for most of us, we don't take, find a way to choosing those things. Very often, something has to happen for us to really grok this stuff. And even if we think we're doing this stuff recreationally, when it comes time to actually when your life depends on it, it feels very different. Um, so... Anyway, so I think I think part of the power, what I learned, um, in some ways, was to drop my frames of reference, or at least to see them as frames of reference. This mm. sort of standardized human thing that we, what do we? This, this sort of standardized healthy or normal person. You have to be of a certain weight. You got to have four limbs. You got to be, like that's, who made up that standard? 
You know, like once I dropped comparing and contrasting myself to these people that I'm supposed to aspire to be and just dealt with what is, like was I unfortunate to be missing three limbs or was I super lucky to have this one, my one dominant arm? The one limb I had was my right arm and that's why I was a right-handed. Am I super lucky to have that one arm or am I super unfortunate to lose three? You tell me. I mean, I get to play with that. I can move between those. Mm. And I, I choose to see myself as lucky to have this one arm. It just feels better. It's a more operative point of view. So I guess what I'm going tripping up into is what I think Wilfred did, what I think I'm trying to do, what a lot of us do in smaller, big ways, is at some point you command your frame of reference. I'm going to compare myself to myself. Mm. I'm not going to compare myself to this weirdo that I don't know who's got limbs and all this stuff. Because that's just a recipe for disaster. I'll check in with these norms, you know, because we are social creatures. Like we start our conversation, we're not autom- automatons, individuals, you know, in vacuums. So, of course, there's something about how we keep each other in check and compare and contrast ourselves. But see that as a small compulsion rather than this obsession that we tend to have about being a certain weight, blah, blah, blah. So once I consume, once I took on the responsibility of being my own frame of reference, then, then I took on responsibility how I felt in the world and how I, what I, how I behaved in the world. Um, and that was a huge pain in the ass and a huge, huge gift. So circling back to this moment, um, there's, I think, I think we start realizing that we human beings are freer than we think we are. We're freer than we act. And the freedom comes in the ways that we're talking about right now. Um, right now, the, the virus is imposing a real lack of freedom in some real ways, right? And it's checking ours, making ourselves appreciate the freedoms that we do have. And if we're taking inventory and taking stock, one of those freedoms is going to be how we think, mm-hmm. how we think about ourselves in the world and how, how we work with our feelings. Um, so there is the big opportunity. This is we are now having this moment at scale where which we get to check our assumptions. We get to drop the habits. We get to look at the world differently. We get to see ourselves differently. We get to prioritize differently. We get to reassess what's important, what we can let go of. Those are, those exercises usually are wasted on folks who don't have much time left. And I see so much regret at the end of life where people who say, darn it, why didn't I think about these things sooner? You know, now I'm on my deathbed and now I'm realizing how free I am. Why didn't I take this seriously before? And it's usually with a wink and it's usually not with a lot of regret. It's just because we humans do what we do. But here we are, have this big fat excuse to reexamine the world and ourselves within that world and how we see it. And the opportunity to come out the backside, having learned a ton as a species, having to reorient ourselves to our nature to nature in general and human nature and to see human nature as a part of nature, not as opposed to nature. Mm. All these conventions are coming crashing down. These things that we took as reality, which were really just conventions to help us digest reality, those fall away and we now get a chance to see actual reality. And that is, I think, the opportunity. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. As it relates to that, that sort of interconnection with nature, I mean, that's something I've really been thinking about because obviously one of the pieces 
that we've been contending with is, is this sort of climate change, whatever, whatever word you want to use, are, are basically the results of humanity not living sort of in harmony, uh, in accordance, yeah. as many say, for example, of our indigenous uh, elders had, uh, and yeah. this sort of some, some effect of it. And what's been interesting is not to mitigate against any of the you know, individual sufferings that's happening or collective suffering that's happening. But it, it, it is a forced reset in a way that I felt like no, uh, you know, and there's been memes about this, so to speak, that no PR for climate change could ever have done in regards yeah. to sort of slowing, slowing us down and really forcing that, those questions and that, if you will, reckoning. And it was, yeah. it, it was interesting because I was talking with a friend and actually in the moment of flow of connecting with you, like, you know, traditionally, obviously I would prefer to do this in person, but even just like in listening there was for me, and I, you know, and I've been reading. Obviously, was reading your book in preparation for this, which is a lot about planning, sort of beginning, beginner's guide to the end, a planning for uh, death. And I, unfortunately, uh, have had to reckon with that, not in the easiest way. I wish I had discovered your book many years ago, because um, you know, there's there's a lot of realities as it relates to the individual process. But uh, financially, uh, you know, etc. That I had, you know, I had to figure out the hard way, but. One of the things that I think that the gift of this moment has given me is exactly that, like the, the, the choosing of what have I been living as a default reality that perhaps was socially inherited or that I've just become numb to doing anything in a, in a different way. And what is actually the opportunity of this moment, if you will, you know, and a friend of mine uses to bring it back to art. You know, we can you can choose to see this as quarantine, or you could choose to see it as a, as an artist retreat. You know, like you could choose to use it as the perfect time to create that masterwork you've been thinking of, but always put off because of eighteen different distractions that you use uh, to yeah. to justify not delving into it. Um, but yeah. for for me, it's been it's been a real. Uh, I think I think it's for all of us. It's an individual and collective reckoning, um, and and how we choose to. Uh, come out of that reckoning, we'll see. But I, I do think what you said is so salient to me because it, it does, it's a forced disruption of what we've taken as our default mode for reality, which isn't necessarily reality. It's just the assumptions oh. that we've been living under. And, and, and actually, that was my greatest solace to be, one of my greatest solaces in confronting death was I actually, I've been doing in, in my own, to bring it sort of inherently per, into an inherently personal place in a way, something that I haven't talked about that much, but, um, you know, part of the way that I've been contending with the loss of the person I love most on the planet is I've been doing a fair amount of deep personal work. And a lot of that has looked like meditation and other traditional vehicles, but I've also... I, I've been very fortunate from my time in Sri Lanka to get access to um, circles that are traditionally more challenging to, to uh, get into with, with various indigenous elders. And I, and I did a, a, um, a very beautiful, uh, 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 well, I'll just say it out loud, peyote ceremony, um, which I don't think I've ever talked about, with, uh, with an, an indigenous community. And during that time, did a deep reckoning around. Uh, I actually have a, a, a medicine pouch um, that was given to me that is my father's, and to me, it's almost like it's it's the it's the relic that holds his essence to me. And so, I when I do my own form of prayer, I I, I pray with it. And during that ceremony, it had broken off my neck, 
And so it was this, it was a very interesting symbol where I was uh, both confronted by, it's hard to describe, I mean, to, to, and thank you for indulging me uh, in this story, Um, but in the sunrise to sit there with a, a Diné elder who was working with a rattle. I don't know if anyone listening has ever seen A River Runs Through It, but there's that scene where he's fly fishing, uh, and, and, and you sort of catch a glimpse of someone who's, in that artistic way, created through petition their own unique expression. And Pausing for a moment to honor that story and share for those listening that in part two of this episode... Uh, we go super deep, um, deeper than I've ever gone before into my personal experience um, as it relates to mourning and my father. And BJ goes all the way there in terms of how we can use grief and challenge as impetus for um, for personal triumph and for triumph maybe the wrong word, but for personal reckoning and and we go more deeply into the collective reckoning that is is part of um, I think what all of us are going through right now. So um, I had we had for whatever reasons a technical gap in the conversation. So I'm breaking it into two parts. So if you're enjoying the conversation, it gets uh, even deeper. Uh, and go ahead over and uh, and click on part two of this episode with the epic B.J. Miller. <laughs> 